0: You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 20th of March 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster and on today's show... As Prime Minister, I am not prepared to delay Brexit any further than the 30th of June. Staying a while longer, British Prime Minister Theresa May asks Europe to extend the deadline for the UK to leave the European Union. Italy alarms its European and American allies by signing up to China's multi-billion dollar Belt and Road Initiative. My guests Michael Binion and Peter Goodman will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including... As investigators search for what caused Boeing's 737 MAX plane to crash in Ethiopia, questions are raised over whether the company had too much power to regulate itself. All that plus, is reconciliation working in Rwanda, a quarter of a century after nearly a million people were murdered in the country's genocide? That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are the Foreign Affairs Specialist for the Times, Michael Binion, and Peter Goodman, who's the Global Economic Correspondent for the New York Times. Gentlemen, welcome to both both of you to the programme. Now, uh, Britain is supposed to leave the European Union in nine days' time, although it's now looking as if the deadline could be extended. Prime Minister Theresa May has written to the EU asking for Brexit to be delayed until the end of June, giving her more time to come up with a plan that Parliament is likely to approve. Mrs May's withdrawal deal had already been defeated twice and many commentators believe it would have suffered another rejection if the house of commons speaker hadn't prevented her from putting it before parliament a third time it's a bit like trying to disentangle strands of spaghetti but you do have to ask yourself that if she can't find a brexit deal after two years then why on earth should anyone believe that she can turn things around by the end of june Either of you, really? <laughs> You're stunned by the brilliance well, of the yes, question. <laughs> I don't think anyone does
1: believe she can turn it around. I mean, I think the feeling is that the catastrophe of leaving without a deal would be so enormous and so damaging to British business that somehow they've got to do everything to stop that, which means a lot of banging heads together, and that means, in the end, it means either some kind of modification of the deal that's on the table already, uh, and or it means. Uh, Having a series of other options now, the other options look increasingly less likely. You know, a Norway-type deal or a deal that, um, oh, even a second referendum that looks increasingly less likely. Mm. So it does mean a, a reworking of what's already mm. there. There's also
0: the Canada deal and Canada plus plus deal. And exactly, probably I, other I variations mean, of that. There's just
1: not time for all the other things. I mean, uh, and the idea that we could possibly rerun the referendum again. I think is impractical. It would take a whole year to get that organized in the result. And then there would be massive political anger and upheaval, especially if the result was overturned and uh, remain one. So I think it is a question now of trying to find some formula of words that uh, satisfies the Irish, the democratic unionists, and uh, somehow um, bears down on the opposition of the hardline Brexiteers.
0: Mm. And, I, and I guess, Peter, that when you look at the possibility of a, of a breakthrough, it does revolve around the Irish backstop, the, the legal words surrounding it. And well, again, you've got the Attorney General, because, I mean, how can he, how can he do this? I mean, he, this man's got a big brain. He's gone through it with a fine tooth comb. So if he can't actually find a way around it now, how can you expect him to find one in the future?
2: Right. I mean, let's understand that every option from here, as we try to game this out, looks unlikely some unlikely option is gonna happen. I mean, we've all assumed that no deal, which Parliament's actually voted against, uh, was unlikely for the reasons that it would be potentially catastrophic for the British economy, bad for the European economy. Uh, and yet, the odds of a of a crash out or a crash out plus plus, as a friend of mine likes to call it, you know, have definitely gone up. Uh, as we've heard uh, from the European Council President Donald Tusk, that uh, without some pass, without passage of this extremely unpopular withdrawal bill that Miss May has tried a couple times to get through Parliament, unless that passes, there's no extension uh, along the lines of the one she's asked for, which is a, sh- a short extension. That leaves open and the possibility that perhaps she could come back and ask for a long extension, but she probably can't survive as prime minister in that scenario. And it seems pretty likely that, you know, let, let's remember, there's no one Europe who has to bless an extension. There are 27 individual countries with their own agendas. It's conceivable that Italy, uh, run by Matteo Salvini, uh, could veto as a favor to his buddy Nigel Farage, Spain could play the Gibraltar card. I mean, there are all sorts of unlikely ways in which a single country could hold up an extension. But it's pretty much impossible to imagine a long extension uh, unless uh, there's a significant political shift in Britain such that there's consideration of a second vote uh, or a general election. So, so, you know, who knows?
0: Mm. And and Michael, the other thing which we we can't discount from this is that she's asked for, for June, and in that period between now and June, of course, there are the European elections. Well,
1: I think they'll get around that one. If they do agree a short extension, they'll find some way, some form of words, saying given the impending disqualification of Britain by its own choice, we have a way. They'll they'll find some legal fudge on that one. But I very much agree with Peter. I think the chances of crashing out, even though Parliament has voted against it, are actually growing. But I think it would be, as he said, cr- crashing out plus plus, because the moment that happens, then there really is a crisis. You might say there's been a crisis all the time, but this is a real crisis then. This is a typical way the European Union does business. It's past midnight then, and then they have to negotiate stopping the clock. So they crash out, then they have to have emergency provisions to stop endless uh, lines and queues of cars at Dover and at Calais, and to allow planes to continue flying and people to travel and all the sort of absolutely urgent things, medicine to import uh, uh, urgent drugs and all that. And they will find a way of doing that pretty quickly. Uh, But it won't be a proper deal. It will be just emergency measures, which will sort of smooth things over for a bit while they all think what to do next.
0: And that's the problem, because it seems that nobody really does know quite what to do next. And it's also the the, the the way that this is played, Peter, the sense that before you had John Bercow's extraordinary intervention, it did seem as if Theresa May was a cat's whisker away from getting this deal because she made it quite clear to everybody, look, if you don't vote for this then what are the options? We'll just crash out. And we've all agreed that nobody really wants that, apart from the the hardcore Brexiteers in the party. And then, of course,
2: Mr. Burko completely throws things by evoking a law from 1604. Well, that was clearly her strategy. Let's spook the Brexiteers in her own party into worrying that this is their last shot Mm. to get any kind of Brexit at all, that if they vote this thing down again, she will turn towards some softer form of Brexit like Norway. Uh, and uh, that didn't work, so it, we, it, we really don't know. But she was certainly
0: winning, win, winning people over I mean, to there, a certain there, there extent. There was a sign that
2: there was an erosion of opposition, but by no means was anyone certain that she could win a third or even a fourth vote, so, as So Bercow did her a favor, really, <laughs> is well, what
0: he spared, well, we, spared I mean, her we'll, more humiliation? We'll, we'll, we'll
2: never know. But one thing uh, bears uh, keeping in mind, and, and that's that you know Britain has really overplayed its hand from the beginning. I mean, I mean from inception, Theresa May was running around saying things like, you know, no deal is better than a bad deal. Well, that turns out not to have been true. And, and now, you know, there's this assumption from, from the Brexiteers that you know, at the end of the day, Europe is just as terrified about crashing out. Maybe not. I mean, Europe is actually prepared for this. I mean, they're, they're, they've they hired a lot of customs officials. The, the Dutch have run all sorts of scenarios. There are alternative port arrangements. Britain has actually been very slow in making arrangements. Britain is in no position to negotiate a trade deal. I mean, Britain's supposed to be able to reap all these fantastic benefits. Getting a magnificent trade deal from Donald Trump. Uh, You know, good luck with that. But, I mean, it turns out that you don't even have the people, you don't have the lawyers and and the trade experts who are familiar with how to negotiate a trade deal. I'm glad you mentioned Donald Trump because you can't really detach
0: Donald Trump from Brexit and certainly not his son because, of course, his son wrote that article in one of the British newspapers here basically saying, well, you know, my dad gave Mrs. May some really terrific advice and if she'd followed his terrific advice. She wouldn't be in this mess that she's <laughs> in. Now, we don't quite know what this terrific advice no, was. We don't, can no. we speculate? Dare we speculate? Probably just
1: kick ass or
0: something. <laughs> quite, no. With her kitten heel shoes. Yes.
1: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I think Donald Trump is just trying to reap whatever um, kind of political benefit there might be by saying, you know, we, we stand firm, we can do things, and uh, we'll just give a bit of backbone and pluck to Theresa May. But uh, actually, it's pretty irrelevant, because uh, the key thing, of course, is a trade deal. There are hardly any trade deals either ready. Certainly none ready for signing. Uh, fairly close to one on, with Canada, but the key ones would be obviously uh, Japan and the United States. And there's no sign of anything coming along there.
0: Mm. And we, look, we, people will look back at this. We're looking back at it now, even though the drama has yet to conclude. They will look back at this in five years' time, ten years' time. Oh, to be a political science student in um, the 2030s. Is there a sense that? Mrs. May did have a golden opportunity with Brexit to shape it in her own way by doing the basics, but it was her personality that obstructed... I think that's
2: unfair. I mean, whoever stepped into this thankless job was going to have a hard go of it, whether they were a Remainer or a Lever. I mean, the, the thing is, the country voted for something that was in no way defined and then immediately the political class started talking about aims that are irreconcilable oh we're going to control the borders and limit immigration but we're going to keep all the benefits of being in the single market well no you're not uh and you know the irish are remaining within uh, the eu 27 and of course the european union is not going to uh, allow a deal that puts uh, ireland in a position where the troubles potentially come back and trade is impeded uh, across the northern ireland republic of Ireland border. And, and somehow, you know, the, the chattering class in Britain just carried on as if we're, I mean, Boris Johnson famously said, we're going to have our cake and eat it too. Well, how's the cake working out? <laughs> <laughs> Save me a slice. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, someone's baking it somewhere, but they haven't offered a slice to us. Let's move on now because it seems as if Italy may be on the collision course with its European and American allies. Chinese President Xi Jinping will visit Rome on Thursday, where he's expected to extend his so-called Belt and Road initiative by signing multi-million dollar commercial pacts with Italy's Prime Minister Roberto Conte. Mr Conte says the deal will be a massive boost for his country's economy, although the EU and America are less enthusiastic. The European Commission has called for curbs on the activities of Chinese state-owned enterprises in the EU, while the US, which is locked in a trade war with China, has accused Beijing of adopting a quote, predatory approach to investing. Okay, so Peter, let me start with you because the, the impression that one gets is that we're in a changing world and perhaps Europe is clueless on how it should deal with America or, sorry, sorry, with China, whereas the Americans, even if you criticise the approach, at least they've got one, in terms of no, dealing with China. I, I no, don't,
2: I don't think that's quite right. I mean, I mean, the U.S. is similarly schizophrenic on China in that there's economic codependence, but there's a sense that China's eating our lunch and China's a strategic uh, competitor. China's also, you know, an enormous holder of American debt. If China suddenly decided to edge out of American debt, there'd be financial calamity. So, I mean, you know, the U.S. is a more easily governed place because it's one country in terms of managing the policy, but there are internal inconsistencies just within the Trump administration in terms of how they're managing China. For for Europe this is really a very complex situation because China has a has this enormous uh, belt and road initiative this trillion dollar uh, collection of infrastructure projects that accomplish a lot of objectives at once I mean they're, they're building uh, ports and rail and road connections and extending uh, uh, electrical and telecom connections all the way across uh, Central Asia mm-hmm. and South Asia and, and, and into so it's into like Europe. a
0: 21st century Silk Road of, of yeah. the Silk
2: Road, and it and it achieves, you know, creating jobs for Chinese uh, construction companies, and and making it easier for Chinese goods, importantly, to get to Europe without depending upon American-policed shipping lanes. So, you know, countries like Greece, uh, which is uh, now handed over its port of Piraeus, essentially, to mm. China's largest shipping. I think about fifty percent of it that went 50 to yes yeah. right? So, you know, China is has got this beachhead and is stepping in at a time when a lot of countries, especially. In the East, Hungary uh, has has been absorbing large amounts of Chinese investment. Italy's now in this standoff with Europe over how much debt it can take on as it tries to spur this very weak economic growth. And in comes China, saying we like the look of these. And, ports. and
0: that's the point because I want I want to develop sure. that point and just throw it over to you, Michael. It's 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 the strategy that you basically pick off, if you like, wayward EU states. Peter mentioned Hungary there. We've got this robust Conservative government of Viktor Orban saying things, doing things which contradict the European spirit. You've then got Italy with this populist government. Go to these places, stir up the pot. As long as you get what you want, it doesn't really matter.
1: Well, certainly. I mean, wayward politically, but economically in some difficulty. Uh, Italy, as Peter said, is in tremendous economic difficulty. I mean, a very, very poor Economic record in the so last few years. So you can understand the
0: temptation that they want to get cosy with China. Well, of course,
1: because there's a lot of money, that, you know, a bonanza that could help them through the next year or two or, or beyond, as they see it, and investment and all the things that they can't seem to be able to get going themselves. And here comes a, a potential partner, and Italy doesn't see an immediate threat to its own interests. It says it could say uh, we could benefit from this, and you know, there is an argument that they could. But uh, the Chinese are very shrewd in picking off those countries where there is. A an economic difficulty. Greece, as we've heard, they have been in economic trouble for some time and are not out of it yet. And Hungary, although they have this tremendously strong nationalist political ideology, they in fact have a real problem because they've got tremendous labour shortages and they're not allowing immigrants to come in. Uh, They are not looking at robust growth and here come the Chinese. And of course all these governments also quite like strong authoritarian governments overseas. That's the sort of model they rather like. They rather admire that, and China doesn't have quite the same political hang-ups that it would be. They would have if they tried to do some deal with Russia. So, it, it, you know, what's
0: to dislike in that view? Mm, but then, I guess, from the point of view of of, of the EU, Peter, is that it, it it's another body blow to yeah. the project, to the grand vision, because you've that's got right. one one player that's trying to get out. There are others where perhaps the Eurosceptic movement isn't quite so strong, but nonetheless, they may be very sympathetic to Britain. And on the other hand, you've got the Chinese who, even if their intention isn't to weaken Europe, it's certainly to actually get the best they can. And they're they're undermining the structure.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I sat down with the Hungarian foreign minister last summer and asked him, where does Chinese investment fit into your plans? He said, it's an alternative to European development funds. Now, he took pains to say, we're all in on the European Union, don't view this as our attempt to you know, break away. But look, the European Union is looking at Hungary and Poland turning toward authoritarian tendencies that absolutely undermine the spirit of the European integrationist project. This is not how a European country is supposed to function, to pack your judiciary with friendly judges, to uh, to mess around with uh, the the way elections are conducted. Mm, and stoke and, up anti-Semitism. Right. Exactly. So, so what's the lever that the Europeans can ultimately pull to apply some pressure to Hungary? Well, they can say, we're not going to give you European development. Funds to which Hungary can say, "Well, okay, so we'll just turn to China. China will build without any uh, tenders, without any competitive bidding. We will will invest, but you've got to give the the jobs to Chinese Chinese construction companies." This undermines how Europe is supposed mm. to function. And then the other problem as well, I guess, is that look, Italy and others who may
0: choose to get into bed with, with the Chinese, Michael, they 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 sign these deals. But where's the reciprocation? Does that mean that an Italian company that wants to do business in China will somehow get preferential treatment or will they have to take their place in the queue with everybody else? Because that's the complaint that a lot of Western businesses have about the Chinese markets. It's very difficult to get in there and work on a level playing field.
1: It is, yes, but, I mean, it's equally difficult for everyone. I would have thought Italy had hopes that they might have some preferential treatment, but it depends what contracts there are to be picked up, and there aren't very many. I mean, Italy has a pretty good record in civil engineering, for example, so some of these major projects the Chinese might... Uh, invite them to co-tender or to co-bid for some of, for example, uh, roads and rail... Mm. I mean, these vast railway lines... But you're bidding
0: against other players, you that's the You are bidding point. against
1: others, but, I mean, they might hope that there would be some preferential treatment, but it's certainly not guaranteed. And uh, the the danger is, of course, that they can't fulfil their part of the contract then of course they get into debt with China and this is what the third world or or the developing countries have all found, that they don't pay back the debt and then all of a sudden Chinese owns your telecom system or something like that.
0: Oh dear, and of course that fans up nationalist feelings again. Gentlemen, let's break away from it at the moment because you're listening to Midori House here with me, Juliet Foster, Michael Binion and Peter Goodman. They are of course my guests. And coming up next, as investigators search for what caused a Boeing 737 MAX plane to crash in Ethiopia, questions are raised over whether Boeing had two much power to regulate itself.
1: Rome boasts an ancient specialisation in restoring the masterpieces of the past, but thanks to innovative technology, the works of Rome's art restorers is also very current. Monocle Films travelled to the Eternal City to visit restoration studio Merlini Storti. The founders of the all-women
2: team were trained by the former chief restorer at Vatican Museums, Maurizio De Luca.
1: We can understand how restoration has always been present and how, from the historical background, schools of restoration to were founded, that have formed a generation of restorers who currently are considered the best in the world. The art of restoration playing now in the film section at monocle.com.
0: Still with me are Michael Binion and Peter Goodman. Now, as air accident investigators search for what caused a Boeing 737 MAX plane to crash in Ethiopia minutes after takeoff, questions are now being raised about the manufacturer Boeing. The 737 MAX was one of the first commercial jets approved under new rules, which dedicated more authority to the company than had been the case when its previous planes were certified. Aviation experts believe the 737 MAX's software system may have had a role to play in the Ethiopian crash and one that occurred last year. Now, that was the Lion Air disaster, I believe. But look, potentially, standing back from this a moment, but you get the sense that we may have the stirrings of a major scandal here that goes beyond the causes
2: of an air disaster. Is that a fair assumption to make? Well, I, I mean, I don't think it's a scandal in the sense. It's not as if something, some some clear danger was uh, hidden so they could put people on an airplane that would crash. I mean, it's not as if Boeing in the long term can withstand uh, a, a jet crash. I mean, you, you have to assume that the engineers thought that they had produced a safe plane. But uh, it is pretty clear that this process in the States of essentially outsourcing from the Federal Aviation Administration, which is the regulator uh, for airlines and aircraft, uh, saying, okay, Boeing, you certify for yourself that this plane is safe. That doesn't look like such a great idea, to let the people building the plane be is, the is ones that, to is decide. Is that something
0: new, or ha- has that always well, been the way that tradition things have been of done? This
2: in, in, in the United States, I mean, especially in recent decades. I mean, really, ever since Reagan and the 80s, there's been this sense that's taken hold in politics that, you know, let's just get government out. Out of the way of business, and then business will innovate and do magnificent things, and the economy will grow. And so, I mean, in in the Trump era, this is this is really uh, taking root. But this happened back in 2012. This was long before Donald Trump. There's this tradition of 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 demonizing the regulatory system, and it it you know it it helped produce the financial crisis of 2008, and it does seem to have played some role in uh, Boeing. Uh, not reckoning fully with the implications of the software that they didn't even tell the pilots about. Mm. The pilots didn't understand what they were on.
0: And this is the point, isn't it, Michael, that it's it's the Boeing personnel who are talking about this, but perhaps whistleblowing is too strong a term to use, but it certainly sounds a bit like that.
1: Yes. I think, as Peter says, there's no deliberate uh, cover-up. There's no deliberate scandal. People thought they were doing the right thing. They thought it would be safe. They thought it was actually going to be better. Uh, And it's uh, a way of making this very well-known and traditional uh, aircraft relevant and up-to-date and more fuel-efficient and better in every way. But uh, the problem has been that somebody thought somebody else knew what was happening, and somebody Mm. thought somebody else had told someone. And And there's a breakdown in the communication. And I think it does show that regulation is still needed. The thing is that Boeing is an extremely big, profitable, um, well-reputed company, well-known company, And people felt, well, they make really high-precision stuff. They must know what they're doing, Hmm. and they must know all about it. And people thought, why get government in the way? Government just holds things up. There'll be red tape, and actually it will set us back in the global competition with Airbus to sell mm. planes uh, because Airbus, of course, are going to profit enormously from this uh, tremendous tragedy that uh, Boeing is about to encounter.
0: But then what made it worse, I guess, was the way that Boeing responded to the tragedy because as soon as this plane was downed, you found that a number of, of carriers refused to fly this plane. So they, they grounded their fleets, whereas the United States of America said, no, 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 Let's keep it going because Boeing has told us that everything is okay.
2: Well, and let's also remember, though, that this plane has been in in service in the U.S., without any demonstrable problems. And Boeing actually has an incredible safety record. So, I mean, there's a lot of nuance to this. This is not like the VW diesel scandal where people saw a study that really hurt the company and they just stuck it under, you know, a rock somewhere and kept selling these cars and lying. I mean, it, it's more complicated than that. But But I do think Michael's point about the Airbus competition is really important because, you know, it seems like a key dimension here was Boeing is in this incredible competition with Airbus. Airbus has got the A320, Mm. Uh, Boeing has the 737, which, you know, is, is, the workhorse of of commercial aviation and they want to roll out a new model to compete with the a320 but they don't want it to be a new enough model that they have to say to the airlines well if you buy the new model you're going to have to train your pilots you're going to have to put them on simulators it's going to take a long time it's the same as the old one but it really isn't it's got heavier engines and as because of that there's a tendency for the nose of the plane to tip up which risks a stall so they put in this software that pushes the nose down and they don't tell anybody about this. And so when there are problems, the pilots don't know what they're dealing with.
0: OK, so miscommunication is costing Boeing dearly. OK, let's move on now to our final subject, because it has been 25 years since Rwanda was plunged into a brutal conflict that claimed the lives of almost a million people in a 100-day genocide. Now, prior to the violence, Rwanda's population was put at around 7 million people. After the war, the new government had to rebuild the country and bring those responsible for the atrocities to justice. Now, while some were dealt with it, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. Others were tried by a system that elected local leaders to serve as judges, with trials being conducted at community level. So is local justice perhaps the best way forward for a country that has suffered an extreme trauma? And it does seem, well, it's hard to believe that it was only 25 years ago that we were shocked by these astonishing pictures and, and cruelty, etc., that emerged. But um, I know that, I've, is it both of you that have been yeah, to Rwanda I mean, yes, very recently? There, yeah. yeah, so I, I'd week. love to get your, your interpretations of yes. what has happened 25 years on for that brutality
1: well firstly the country has moved on simply in terms of population seventy percent of people in Rwanda now were not old enough uh, they, they weren't they were born after the genocide uh, or they were born they were only about two or three at that time. Uh, they have had these village courts, gachacha courts, which have now stopped. That system has stopped. It lasted about five years. They've now got to the stage of beginning the really difficult thing, which is reconciliation. And it's not just the uh, the perpetrators and the victims having to live beside each other, because many of the perpetrators went to prison but they've done their seven or ten years or whatever it is. They've come out and now they're going back to the villages and how to get these people living together. And I went to look at a number of projects in some fairly remote villages where perpetrators were living among those who who had survived. And it was remarkable the way they were actually trying to get people to reintegrate and seem to be working, but they were also working with young people because they have inherited... Trauma. The children of the perpetrators, you know, whose fathers had killed hundreds, they carry shame and guilt and whatever. And the children of the victims equally feel both angry and aggrieved and don't know, you know, whether it will come again. They feel fearful. And I have to say, I think Rwanda's done a fantastic job. They're also lucky enough that they're doing pretty well economically. And of course, once things are
2: going better economically, that soothes a lot of wounds. Mm. And and Peter, you're, you're taking it as well. Yeah, I mean, look, I've been to Rwanda once. I'm I'm far from an expert. I was there in September for about ten days, and I I mean, I was very struck, uh, particularly having spent a lot of time in Cambodia early in my career in the early '90s, which was a you know even closer to its genocide than than I was for Rwanda's. There, there was a sense of, of normalcy just that, that an outsider could feel. I mean, passing through villages, driving these remarkable roads. It's, I mean, K- Kagame, the president, has, has been very aggressive in courting uh, outside investment. He's sort of the darling of the international development set. And the infrastructure is in very good shape. Everyone remarks on how clean the streets of Kigali are. There's a skyline developing. There's a, there's a pretty thriving tourism uh, sector developing And I mean In terms of the reconciliation you, you have to admire Any country That deals with such trauma And, and tries to, to Really reckon with this I, I will say though That that when you speak To Rwandans uh, Who are old enough To remember the genocide I mean you you get to A dark place Very quickly I mean it's, it, it's it, One can easily Walk away with the sense That you know That's now Part of ancient history uh, And mm. Michael's point Is well taken That you know Most of the population Doesn't remember these yeah, events. but I mean, this is a traumatized mm. country, and it and it, it makes it very hard to mm. govern because it,
0: it's too recent to be ancient yeah, history. I mean, That's the point. Yeah, yeah. Also,
2: the ideology itself
1: hasn't been completely eradicated. Mm. And this, are... this was
0: the combat between the Hutus, yeah. the Houthis and the Tutsis. Well, of course,
1: that is a combat that was fanned, I'm afraid, right from the start, mm. and it, it goes back to Belgian colonial times, mm. where the Belgians favoured the minority Tutsi and deliberately promoted them, which of course created envy and anger mm. and separate. And then they gave a sort of racial dimension to it, which is a bit dubious. You know, the Tutsis come from a different part of Africa and that they're not really the same people, although they speak the same language. So all that, those overtones, mm. which got mixed up with kind of right-wing racist ideological backing... But it still lingers, Or elements of it. It's not completely gone, and that's why they do keep a very tight lid. I mean, Kagame has been well criticised for being pretty much an authoritarian strongman, one might say dictator, who does not allow any opposition and, and really clamps down... There is an argument to say uh, he should not allow that lid to come off because there are still things beneath the surface there. And you, the ar- the argument people look at is Yugoslavia, where Tito kept this lid on the place for mm, 40 years. That's right. If he managed to keep a lid on another 20 years, it would have probably all been OK. But as long as there were people there who were still
0: lingering with what happened... It came back up again, mm. and, this, and, and also as well, when you when you look at this this template, it's, it's not unique to Rwanda because obviously there was the Vietnamese experience as well, and to a certain extent, the South Cambodia, Africa. Germany, sorry, I beg your pardon, there the Cambodia, but also South Africa as well, the Truth and Reconciliation sure. Committees, etc. I mean, look, there's a practical element to this because when you're talking about these atrocities, yes, you have a mastermind, but then you've got the the others at the ground level who who, who perpetuate it. So really, the, the traditional judicial system isn't really going to
2: work to a certain extent. Well, Well, that's the thing. I mean, truth and reconciliation, who's not for those things? I mean, in the case of Rwanda, you actually have one side in a long-running conflict that has won, and some would say now imposing their order.
0: Okay, look, it's a fascinating subject. Sadly, we don't have the time to continue with it, but we have reached the end of today's show. So my guests, Michael Binion and Peter Goodman, thank you for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show was produced by Daniel Bach, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Rory Goodrick, and our studio manager was Christy Evans.